0: Listening to the Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 30th day of July 2012. I'd like to invite all the listeners once again to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous editions of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, videos, and radio programs that I've created and conducted over the past five years, available completely commercial-free and free to download for your listening and viewing pleasure. I'd like to also let people know that I was recently a guest on the Deadline Live program with Jack Blood at DeadlineLive.info. So for those of you who have not yet checked out Jack Blood's work, I would suggest you do so at Deadline Live. Or, of course, for those of you who are already familiar with Jack Blood, I'm sure most of you out there are, I would suggest that you sign up for his podcast feed, of course, uh, completely free. And if you do so, you'll find my appearance on his show in the second hour of last Thursday's program, where we talked about a range of subjects, including the alternative media and also the Aurora, Colorado shooting. And uh, for those of you who are listening to this podcast in, on Monday, July 30th, I will be appearing on Dr. Stan Monteith's radio program later today. That's at 4 p.m. Pacific time. So if you get this in time, please, by all means, tune in and listen live. And finally today, I would also like to direct people's attention to a YouTube channel. It's the YouTube channel Ubagnaj, <laughs> And I'm sorry that I am undoubtedly pronouncing that wrong, but I don't know how to say that. It's O-O-B-A-G-N-A-J. But don't worry about that. The link will be in the show notes for today's episode. And I'd just like to draw people's attention there because Ubagnaj has been good enough to put a few of the, uh, the the episodes of this podcast, as well as my radio program, up in their entirety on YouTube. And that is exactly what I am making these videos for and hoping other people will do. Obviously, I can't put it up to my YouTube because my YouTube is, account is limited to 15 minute uploads, so I can't put this big long podcast up there. But for those of you with the full feature length uh, podcast uh, up, uploads at YouTube, by all means, take these videos and post them, spread them around, put them up on your channel, however you wanna do it. I'm totally and 100% in agreement with that. And I hope that people do that to help spread this word even further. So my hat's off to Ubagnaj for doing that, and if, if anyone out there would like to step up to the plate and commit to mir- mirroring all of the, uh, the feature-length m- video uploads that are currently going up to blip.tv Corbett report to their YouTube channel, by all means let me know and I will uh, link to you and I will promote your channel so that other people can find that. And on that note, we have a ton of information to get through, as always, so let's get straight into the podcast. Welcome to episode 237 of the Corbett Report podcast, Fukushima's Biggest Secret. When the Tohoku earthquake struck off the eastern coast of Japan at 2.46pm local time on March 11th, 2011, it set into motion a sequence of events so horrific that their costs are still being calculated. First and foremost among those costs are, of course, the cost that can never be calculated, the cost in human life. The earthquake generated a tsunami that reached over 40 meters in height, moved the main island of Japan by 2.4 meters to the east, and shifted the earth on its axis by as much as 25 centimeters. This tsunami washed away the lives of nearly 20,000 souls, leaving another 6,000 injured in its wake. In an instant, hundreds of thousands of houses, farms, schools Hospitals and businesses were inundated. 340,000 people were displaced from their homes. The Japanese economy was affected to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. The scale of that tragedy is today still almost incomprehensible. But as we are all too familiar now, when the tsunami receded, it left behind it more than just the scar of destruction in its wake. It also exposed a great number of secrets that have long been sheltered by a bodyguard of lies. It exposed the myth of nuclear safety in Japan as the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear meltdown crisis unfolded step by step despite decades of assurances from the Japanese government that the country's 54 nuclear reactors were ready for any eventuality. It exposed the government regulator collusion that helped that nuclear industry to flourish in the face of the widespread and long-term opposition of the only public ever to face the effects of nuclear weapons dropped in wartime. It It exposed the slipshod and often illegal practices that have long been woven into the fabric of the Japanese nuclear industry with workers' salaries being skimmed off by subcontractors, workers forced to wear lead shields over their dosimeters to cover up their true radiation exposures, and dozens of other abuses that have been uncovered in the wake of the scandal. It exposed the complicity of international organizations like the IAEA, the WHO, the OECD, and others in facilitating the worldwide nuclear industry by covering up and downplaying that industry's failures, even while touting the necessity of nuclear energy. But perhaps most significantly of all in the long term, that devastating earthquake and tsunami exposed the biggest secret, that the myth of the necessity of nuclear power in Japan is just that, a myth.
2: A grave decision to solve a grave crisis. That was Prime Minister Yoshihiko Noda's message to his people after he approved the restarting of two Ohi nuclear reactors in western Japan. Recent surveys suggest most in his country want to abandon atomic energy, but the Prime Minister says he had no choice. Parts of Japan are facing a severe power shortage.
1: I had to reach one conclusion while the public opinion was polarized. I take full responsibility. I cannot put people's safety and livelihood at stake by not restarting the nuclear reactors. I ask for the nation's understanding that this is a decision based on trying to protect the people. This is the lie as it has been presented to the people of Japan and indeed the people of the world for decades now. That Japan, being a resource-poor country that relies so much on energy imports in order to satisfy the demands of its people and its industry, just simply cannot afford not to have nuclear power. That nuclear energy is the key to solving Japan's energy crisis. But this is a myth as has been demonstrated amply over the past 18 months, and the sequence of events that led to the shutting down of all of Japan's 54 nuclear reactors for a brief period earlier this year, before two of those reactors were brought back online. Supposedly, as Japanese Prime Minister Noda argues, because Japan simply cannot get by without that nuclear power. But... As I say, this lie is being exposed, and although it is deeply ingrained in the public's imagination, little by little the public is coming to realize that it is a myth that has been propounded by a government that is very much in collusion with the nuclear energy industry. This is a point that was made in some detail and with some eloquence by Eileen Miyoko-Smith of Green Action Japan in a recent appearance on Al Jazeera's The Stream.
0: But Eileen, I'd like to uh, direct another tweet to you and a video comment in a second. Political News says Japan pretty well has no choice if they want to survive. And that's a sentiment that's being echoed by a lot of members of our community. Um, Have a listen to this video comment and let me know what you think.
3: Hi, my name is Christos from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Japan is one of the most developed countries in the world, but before the earthquake it was generating 30% of its energy from the nuclear plants. It was actually targeting to generate 40% of its energy from the nuclear plants. So the people who honestly do not want uh, nuclear energy, uh, I think they fail to understand how dependent uh, Japan is from nuclear energy and how much the, the country needs it.
0: So Eileen, as he says, Japan needs nuclear energy. What are your thoughts?
4: Okay, it's natural this person commented this way because the PR has been incredible through the decades that Japan had to have nuclear power or wouldn't survive. Uh, first of all, it's not thirty percent of Japan's energy; it's dependent on nuclear. It's thirty percent of electricity in Japan is dependent on a nuclear has been. Uh, interesting enough, uh, this May fifth, all the nuclear power plants shut down, and for nearly two months, we had zero nuclear power, and you know. Ginza was lit up, Tokyo's operating. People from Europe come and they thought that Japan is going to be dark and they realized that there's this overuse of electricity even now with zero nuclear power. Then now two plants have gone online and the argument is during the peak in the southern part of Japan. That's when we need the most electricity and we have to have nuclear power. But it turns out that these two nuclear power plants are operating but still we have enough capacity that there is a, a margin of safety that even if these two were uh, not operating we'd be okay so the myth now and the whole country now knows because we had a couple months without nuclear power hey we're surviving we're okay now this doesn't mean long-term immediately things are going to be that easy but as far as you know turning the lights on operating the country we don't have to have nuclear power
1: Well, she did say it at the end there, but it bears repeating that it is not going to be an easy process to transition off of nuclear power, if that is indeed what Japan decides to do by any means, and it simply won't be a matter of snapping our collective fingers to make that happen. It's going to be a long and hard and fought-out process to really replace the industry, which hitherto has been providing 30% of Japan's electricity, And uh, that's a pretty huge hit for any country to take. And it's not one that has been taken lightly so far. Of course, Japan has managed to keep the lights on. And because of that, I'm able to come to you, for uh, for example, on a daily basis here at CorbettReport.com. But only through some Herculean efforts and certainly not the types of efforts that could be sustained for long periods of time without some sort of significant transition taking place... So that, for example, one of the ways that uh, the lights have stayed on is because of last year's effort during the summer months to reduce energy consumption, in, especially in the eastern half of the country, which resulted in 20% reduction in energy usage over peak summer times, which is quite an incredible uh, feat on the behalf of the people living there in eastern Japan. But certainly that's not something that would be expected to happen every year from now on, It was something that was the result of a very protracted, very difficult, very hard-won effort. Another of the hard-fought efforts that have made this possible has been simply a uh, a spending of money to make it happen, and that's reflected in a story that was posted just a few days ago to FukushimaUpdate.com, which I hope you are checking out on a daily basis. Fuel imports put trade deficit near 3 trillion yen. And it says the trade deficit grew to a record 2.915 trillion yen from January to June as rising energy imports more than offset a recovery in exports, the government said Wednesday. The sluggish outcome highlights the difficulties faced by the economy, which has been affected by a stronger yen, a gloomy global outlook amid the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, and growing demand for non-nuclear energy resources. So certainly there has been a large increase in imports, mostly in the form of liquefied natural gas, LNG, which has been the single greatest increase in imports during this crisis as Japan has struggled to meet its energy production needs in the wake of the uh, the taking offline of almost every single reactor in Japan. But having said that, it is not nearly as Herculean a task to replace nuclear energy in Japan as the government would want people to believe. And that is something that is said advisedly and that we can demonstrate from some of the stories that have emerged in the wake of the Fukushima crisis. We can turn back to August of last year for a story that comes from Asahi.com that says dodgy data led to overestimate of electricity demand. Quote, the government's estimate of electricity demand for the area covered by Tokyo Electric Power Co. was based on flimsy data that was inflated by about 20% from actual figures compiled by the Agency for Natural Resources and Energy. Households in eastern Japan have been asked to conserve equal energy equal to up to 15% of the electricity consumed last summer, but the questionable data used means houselo- households have been asked to take more stringent measures than is strictly necessary. The electricity demand estimates issued by the Agency for Natural Resources and Energy in May stated that at 2 p.m. in midsummer, households with someone at home would use 1,200 watts of electricity. The average for all households would be 843 watts. Those figures are considerably higher than the amount of energy that was actually used, however. According to an agency study into the relationship between elect- electricity rates and usage volume, last summer's peak usage hours showed that households where, where, some, where someone was home used 1,000 watts, about 200 watts less than the estimate figure. I'll let you continue reading into the details of that story, but basically what the story was indicating is that the Japanese government was using dodgy numbers in order to come up with their estimates of how much people would have to conserve in order not to have the energy crisis in Japan last summer. So in August, they they say, oops, those numbers we told you about were, they were kind of wrong. So you didn't actually need to conserve that much energy, but good for you, Japan. So that was one of the first indications that there was something amiss in the types of calculations that were going on, trying to find out how much energy Japan had, how much it needed, and how much it was using in terms of uh, the peak electricity demand season of summer. And uh, earlier this year, again, there started to come out new indications that perhaps things were not quite as dire as we were originally told. This comes from Reuters from January 26th of this year. Japan sees no mandatory power cuts in summer. Trade Minister Yukio Edano is confident that Japan's utilities will meet power demand this summer without needing the government to impose a mandatory 15% cut on large-lot users as it did last summer, the Asahi newspaper quoted him as saying in an interview. Edano, the nation's top energy official, also told the paper that it is possible that no nuclear plants will be producing electricity this summer. Japan's push to restart nuclear reactors shut for maintenance by proving their safety through stress tests and plans to let them operate for as long as 60 years has sparked an angry response from the public, wary of atomic power in the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster. Well, understandably so, certainly, especially when it turns out that, oh, you know, those mandatory cuts we were asking people, well, we probably won't need them this year. And even more remarkably, in May of this year, even some more remarkable information came out showing that not only was there not the incredible shortage of power that had originally been predicted uh, by eastern and western electricity boards but also that there may in fact be a surplus of energy in some areas of the country despite the fact that at the time that this particular article was written every single nuclear reactor in the country was shut off this comes from may 10th of 2012 and it's from the japan times kansai to face the heat reactor free quote kansai firms are individuals and individuals are bracing for a long summer as contradictory predictions from Tokyo, Kansai Electric Power Company, and renewable en- energy advocates are stirring concern over how much electricity will be available, but not fueling a desire to restart two nuclear actors that would ensure sufficient power. Since February, when local media reports suggested the Kansai region could face a 25% shortage of electricity this summer without nuclear power, the question of how much electricity was really available has been the subject of debate and doubt. Over the past three months, the projected shortage has been steadily revised downward. The latest prediction, announced by the central government earlier this week, was that the area served by KEPCO faced a maximum 14.9% electricity shortage without nuclear power. Skipping down to later in the article, a joint Osaka Prefecture City Environmental Strategy Committee, comprised of renewable energy experts and KEPCO critics, has been meeting with KEPCO officials since February. Tetsunari Ida, head of the Institute for Sustainable Energy Policies and a committee member, believed that instead of a huge electricity shortage, there is enough available power from other sources that, combined with basic conservation measures, will mean a slight energy surplus. End quote. Well, regardless of the exact numbers, and who knows if we'll ever get them really from uh, sources like the government that have ne- uh, an investment quite literally in the nuclear energy industry and being the PR spokesman for them rather than the regulators of them. Well, e- even if we never quite get the uh, full handle on what the energy situation was or is, there is at least ample room for doubt over the most da- dire warnings that were being issued earlier this year as the nuclear energy crisis was uh, due to hit this summer, well here we are with two reactors so far online, 52 reactors offline, and once again still the lights are on, the power is up. So it is a very interesting situation, isn't it? And it does certainly mean that in the wake of the turning on of those two reactors uh, earlier this month, it does beg the question of whether or not Noda and the Japanese government were interested in saving Japan from the energy crisis, or merely saving the Japanese government from the embarrassment of having to admit that there was no crisis, at least not in the way that they said there was. And it also raises the question of whether or not the reactor restarts and the scramble to get those reactors back online were not due to the energy crisis that was supposedly coming, but because there is now an increasing tidal shift in opinion here in Japan where the vast majority of the public are now against the nuclear industry.
4: Public support for nuclear energy in Japan also seems to be slipping. Tens of thousands of demonstrators held their latest post-Fukushima protest, aimed at pressuring the government to decommission power plants. Organizers say the rally was the biggest since the March 2011 disaster. NHK World's Chie Yamagishi reports from Tokyo.
0: They braved the heat and humidity to come out in historic numbers. These protesters in Tokyo are demanding the government, listen to citizens. Tens of thousands of people are here to say no to nuclear power. Nuclear power is too dangerous for humans to deal with. People in Japan found out how dangerous on March 11, 2011. An earthquake and tsunami triggered explosions and radiation leaks at Fukushima Daiichi the crisis as a facility is still ongoing since then japanese have held protest after protest urging the government to stop using atomic energy a group of prominent figures called for this rally among them a nobel laureate and an academy award-winning musician they told the crowd life and health are much more important than economic efficiency <laughs> Organizers say about 170,000 people came out today to listen to that message and to raise their own voices. Demonstrators demanded the government stop restarting nuclear plants and decommission them.
1: Indeed, it seems that every week here in Japan brings with it a fresh round of protests against the nuclear energy industry, and it seems that every week those protests get louder and stronger as the numbers involved continue to swell. And I just posted up on FukushimaUpdate.com news of the latest round of protests, including protests that was held outside the Japanese government building, the Diet, last night, with. 200,000 people attending a candlelight protest that surrounded the Japanese government building in Tokyo and uh, was quite a thing to behold. That's 200,000 as estimated by the organizers of the protest, 17,000 as estimated by police. So I'll let you take a look at the photos and videos and decide for yourself which side you would like to believe in that estimate, I'm sure the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but still, it is a staggering number of people who are very much involved in protesting against the industry in this normally quite complacent country where large-scale protests have not been seen uh, politically for a good number of decades, with a public here that is, well, world-renowned for being quite uh, complacent politically. So it is a remarkable thing that is happening here, and I certainly do not want to in any way... Uh, it in any shape or form downplay the scale and the size and the scope of the tragedy that has played itself out here for the last year and a half and downplay the loss of lives or the uh, potential loss of lives in the future with Fukushima still very much a crisis that is important and ongoing and will not be uh, cleaned up or cleared up at the very least for for decades and, and realistically for thousands of years before all of the, the contaminants are really uh, dispersed. But what we have here is a remarkable political opportunity that i think presents itself absolutely in no other polity in the world quite so clearly and quite so uh transformatively as it does here in japan with a vast number of people in the public i would say the vast majority of the public quite strongly on the side of shutting down the nuclear energy industry and this presents an opportunity if the political establishment can be made to go along with it and that is another question entirely but it does present the opportunity to transition truly transition off of nuclear power and into alternative energies in a profound way and i would like to take a moment for all of those people who are caught up in the global man-made global warming scam ideas of whether or not carbon dioxide is contributing is driving climate on this planet and is sending us towards eco catastrophe clearly i'm not a believer in that premise but even if you are even if you're not the idea that alternative energies can and really should play a significant part in the electric, electricity future of Japan is uh, beyond dispute. Certainly oil, gas, na- coal, and uh, li- LNG, liquefied natural gas, cannot represent the future if, of Japan because all of that is imports and uh, Japan simply cannot afford to continue to import the scale of, uh, of resources that it needs in order to uh, produce that type of energy on a ongoing basis so i think simply replacing nuclear with uh with fossil fuels for japan is not a long-term answer which means they're has to be other answers. There has to be alternative energy answers. And even though I am not a believer in man-made global warming, and I am not a believer in the peak oil catastrophe hysteria, I do very much believe that fossil fuels as the basis for the world economy is a disastrous, horrible system. And uh, the fossil fuel industry has been cornered since its very inception by the Rockefellers and people like that, who are very much interested in one thing and one thing only, which is maintaining their death grip over the world through their cornering of the market in terms of energy needs and if the entire world energy supply runs on fossil fuels, that very much plays into their hands so while I certainly don't subscribe to the idea that we have to stop using fossil fuels or mother nature will die I certainly don't subscribe to the idea that humans should subject themselves to that that eternity of torture, of being at the whims of the people in control of that fossil fuel industry and who will Uh, increase or decrease supply as they wish because uh, scarcity is artificial scarcity and uh, send countries off to war and move countries around the geopolitical chessboard in search of this uh, fossil fuel. I think it's a ridiculous way to run human civilization and clearly if we are to progress into the next stages of development we will need other forms of energy production and I think this is truly the opportunity and the possibility that Japan is staring at right now. But the question, of course, becomes if it is not to be nuclear power that will be the generating capacity and the the solution for Japan's energy problems in the future, what will be that that potential solution, or those potential solutions, perhaps we should say? Well, let's take a look at some of the numbers and figures. Uh, Before the Fukushima crisis, Japan had an electricity uh, generating capacity of 282 gigawatts. And already, right now, in Japan they are well on the way to producing as much as 10% of that total uh, capacity simply by solar power and that's through a combination of incentives and subsidies and other things that the Japanese government is doing in order to increase the generating capacity of solar in uh, in households here in Japan as well as on a larger scale with even some solar farms so the uh, the projected targets for solar power production in Japan is to have 28 gigawatts of uh, solar capacity online by 2020, 53 gigawatts by 2030, and 10% of total domestic primary primary energy demand by 2050. That's a pretty ambitious target, but if it can be met, I don't see how anyone could have a problem with having more solar capacity. Certainly solar is a very transient uh, and very Um, unpredictable way of generating electricity. It depends, of course, on the vagaries of the sunlight itself. And it is not uh, the only solution. It cannot be the only solution for producing power. But certainly, to the extent that it does produce power, I don't think anyone can argue against it. And certainly, I uh, would recommend people who are interested in getting off the grid at least be investing in and looking at solar generating technologies, because they are becoming affordable, they are becoming doable, and they do generate electricity. Electricity, And recently in Japan, they have instituted a feed-in tariff whereby the electricity companies are mandated to buy a certain percentage of their electricity from uh, consumers who have excess capacity from their solar panels on their house. So they are getting paid 42 yen per kilowatt hour for producing the energy and feeding it into the system, which again i think is win-win for a lot of people i would obviously prefer as a voluntarist for the government to have absolutely no part in this whatsoever but insofar as we are forced to suffer in a world where governments do exist it's certainly better that they put their energy into uh directing uh, this type of transformation of society in terms of getting more people off of the off of the grid or on the grid in terms of producing for the grid, which I think is a good thing. And it does lead to um, a greater capacity. So once again, it's definitely not the answer, but it is certainly part of an answer to developing an alternative energy capacity for Japan And again, some more information about that, not just the domestic uh, generating capacity, but also commercial capacity, comes from a January 2012 article from the Japan Times, Huge Yamanashi Solar Farm Online. Quote, a solar power plant with a capacity of 10 megawatts began operating Friday in Kofu, Yamanashi Prefecture. The Kome Kuria- power station built by Tokyo Electric Power Co. on a 12.5 hectare site is one of the largest fo- photovoltaic facilities in Japan and produces enough electricity to power around 3,400 homes. The site is being leased for Tepco, to TEPCO for free by the Yamanashi Prefectural Government. Well again, the Japanese government uh interference in in the uh, the industry, but still I think ultimately this is uh this is for the best and this is the best way to to start heading in the direction of energy independence. I again I don't see how anyone can argue against solar power, but as I say it is certainly not the answer. Um, Japanese sell more solar power back to utilities. This from Reuters.com. From January 2012, Japanese small solar power owners, householders, and small businesses sold 50% more power to utilities last year than in 2010, Reuters' calculations based on unofficial data showed on Wednesday. Japan is overhauling its energy policy after the Fukushima crisis shattered public confidence in the safety of atomic power, and is set to introduce a new subsidy scheme which covers a wider range of renewable energy power developers to support the budding market for domestically produced power. So again, there are definitely some ideas out there about getting more photovoltaic generating capacity online and on the grid, and I think that is definitely part of the solution, but it is certainly not the whole solution. So what else can we turn to for alternative ways of generating energy? Well, strangely enough, one of the answers might well be nuclear, just not the type of nuclear that you're thinking
5: molten salt reactor.
3: A decade before he called nuclear power society's biggest Faustian bargain, Alvin Weinberg was one of the country's leading nuclear physicists. He invented the light water reactor, the world's most common kind today, the type used at Fukushima. But in the 1960s, as director of Oak Ridge National Laboratory, he began to pursue another idea called the molten salt reactor. Instead of operating at high pressure, with a solid fuel made of uranium. It worked at low pressure, using a liquid fuel that could be made of thorium. Thorium has many advantages. It can produce about 90 times as much energy as uranium and a fraction of the waste. And that waste isn't useful for making bombs. The reactor was considered walk-away safe because it relied on physics, not machines or humans, to keep the reaction under control.
2: So far, the, mul- the molten salt reactor experiment has operated successfully and has earned a reputation for reliability. I think that someday the world will have commercial power reactors of both the uranium-plutonium and the thorium-uranium fuel cycle types.
5: I think when people see it, they understand it a lot better. So. A light water reactor, you're constantly trying to keep it from going uh, out of control. You're constantly trying to manage it with control rods and moving the fuel rods. Molten salt reactor is, is the opposite. You're constantly trying to keep it liquid. You're trying to keep it reactive. You're trying to keep it circulating. And if it ever stopped, it would just it would just drain down into the drain tank or solidify in place or just stop reacting. So it's, a, it's just a much better design overall. This thing can't explode. This thing is ready to explode. And you gotta have redundant systems. You gotta have a pump and a pump and a pump and a pump. You know, it's not walk away safe. It's not self-controlled. You need, you know, computers and operators and controllers to constantly monitor this thing. Whereas this thing's completely self-regulated. If an earthquake and a 747 and a tidal wave hit it all at once, and the chamber tipped over, what would happen? The fluid would flow into this hot cell, down this pool, and into the storage tank.
3: Despite some hiccups, the reactor ran successfully for a record six years. But Alvin Weinberg's concerns about the safety of light water reactors, which were then being built in the United States, had made him unpopular inside the Nixon administration. In 1973, he was fired. And the reactor was shut down.
4: The project was eventually terminated, but I still think that well, eventually people will come back to this way of uh, trying to react. Yes.
1: That's right, folks. The answer to the nuclear nightmare posed by Fukushima and the potential for such nightmare taking place at other uranium reactors around the world may in fact be a different form of nuclear reactor. In this case, the liquid fluoride thorium reactor. And this is an idea that has been around for decades, but was not pursued. Because the uranium reactors just happened to make that uh, that possibility of producing material for nuclear bombs, which has played an integral role in the development of the nuclear industry as we've known it, and has led to us having these big, dangerous nuclear reactors with the possibility of meltdown at any time because of any type of huge-scale disaster. Well, there was, and there has been for decades, the idea in the bag for a different type of reactor that It is impossible for it to go into meltdown. It cannot achieve meltdown. There are no control rods necessary. You don't have to worry about active or even passive safety with this type of reactor because it absolutely cannot melt down it uh, once it's the reaction stops it stops and it has to be restarted as opposed to uranium reactions which have to be actively stopped one way or another usually using control rods so it's a completely different concept and it is not simply a pie in the sky concept it's one that's been tested out on at least a couple of occasions as evidenced in a talk given to google tech talks by dr joe Bonametti who was a is a mechanical engineer from the University of Alabama in Huntsville who has worked for the UAH Propulsion Research Center and NASA and he's been a professor at the Naval Postgraduate School etc cetera, etc cetera. so this is a, a quite highly qualified person who was talking about some of the history of some of the reactors that have already been tried out in the past using this concept
6: well in the tale of... Um the nuclear reactor uh, thorium, uh, engineers don't want to give up. Uh, When they see a good idea, they dog it, even though programmatically and the money and the funding was completely cut off. um, They went around and said, look, um, Air Force, you don't don't have ICBMs yet. Um, You need a credible defense uh, to get your weapons out there, something that could fly a long time. How about this nuclear airplane? Now, the only way that this would ever do in a normal reactor is if you had a liquid reactor. And so they started uh, a program. They sold the Air Force on it, as crazy as it is. And I understand that uh, somebody recently has uh, said something in um, uh, England, I believe, about this. Um, I would not like to see uh, nuclear airplanes um, as our base of commercial uh, flight. Um, I can talk about that at some other time for the reasons for that. But this reactor program started out. They did um, 100 hours, a high temperature. I believe that may be uh, still a, a record... Uh, Certainly for the overall reactor uh, running that long, that hot, and uh, that's uh, 1,500 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Very much hotter than than most reactors can run. Two things that came out of this. One the fission products were naturally removed as you were pumping at it, which was really nice, and get rid of the poisons. And two, the load following capability, which was essential for the airplane application and the fact that you wanted to throttle something without control rods, have instant response from the reactor, and then throttle back if you needed to to get your power. This reactor in the fluid uh, um, method was able to do that uh, unlike unconventional uh, or conventional reactors. Well, that program died pretty quickly as soon as the Air Force realized they could do the job much better with missiles. Um, missile program was, uh, uh, went full ahead, and, and that one was canceled. Um, the engineers still wouldn't give up. Okay, They hunkered down in uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory in a small program. But they ran a small program from 65 to, to 1969. And the main thing I'll say about this, but i to go into great details of the molten salt reactor experiment, was the fact that um, they ran it 24 hours a day, um, three shifts every day. But nobody wanted, none of the engineers wanted to stay for the weekend. So they shut it down on Friday night. And they start it up regularly on Monday morning. Something that's totally, you know, uh, not even thought about today in nuclear power plants. It is a base load. When it goes down, it goes down for a long time. You don't get to restart it.
1: So let me get this straight. We have the concept and the design and even the test implementation in certain cases of a type of reactor that does not rely on the dangerous technologies in, in the uranium reactors, does not present the possibility of nuclear meltdown as those reactors do, does not produce the same type of waste, it does not produce materials that can be used in nuclear weapons, and is runs on a material that is so abundant that the possibility of running out of it is not really thinkable. So why on earth have we not been using this up till this point?
6: The nuclear industry is run by the the government. You're going to have to get government blessing on something um, unless you leave the United States or whatever. Um, There are other countries that are looking into thorium, but again, um, not significantly. And um, so I think the barrier is, is, uh, you know, those type of things. It is a nuclear process and you're going to have to deal with the the proper regulations uh, to meet that.
1: Oh, that's right. Government regulation and interference make it an unviable technology. Well, I think we all should have seen that coming. So for people who are interested in this safe and clean and effective form of nuclear power that has never been really tried on a commercial scale because of those government restrictions and regulations, I suggest you start looking into thorium online. And there are many, many resources out there for you to explore. I'll just put a couple of them out there. For example, there's the Thorium Energy Alliance at thoriumenergyalliance.com. There's also energyfromthorium.com. There are numerous lectures and presentations available online for you to explore that technology in greater detail. But for anyone out there who's still wondering why it is that governments are so wedded to this inherently unsafe and unstable uranium reactor uh, for nuclear power, which does not present uh, what we were all promised in the Atoms for Peace project back in the 50s of uh, electricity too cheap to meter and all of that jazz that they tried to stuff down the public's throats. For people who don't understand what that's all about, I would highly suggest going back to my interview earlier this year with Joseph Trento, in his decades-long investigation that uncovered the secret plutonium shipping program by whereby the U.S. Uh, shipped plutonium to Japan for use in its nuclear program that was all part of really this... Uh, covert idea of, of Japan having this uh, operational ability to have nuclear uh, nuclear weapons program. Basically, with a flip of a switch, the nuclear energy program here in Japan could very easily be turned into a nuclear weapons program if and when that opportunity presents itself. And that is exactly what underlies the Japanese nuclear energy program, the American nuclear energy program, and indeed every nuclear energy program hitherto tested in the world, is the underlying idea that the uranium byproducts of those reactors can be used as the fissile material for weapons that is why we have these designs that is why we are living with these ticking time bombs in uh, so many countries around the world and certainly here in japan and that is what is driving the politics so it is a mighty behemoth indeed to try to slaughter the uranium reactor uh, mindset that has unfortunately infested itself and become that underlying infrastructure that makes it the eight pound uh, giant that can that thinking of displacing it as the uh, nuclear power paradigm is Is extremely difficult, but again, it won't happen without political will, and political will can't be uh, garnered without people at least looking into the issue of alternatives like liquid fluoride thorium reactors. But having said that, we've explored solar, we've uh, explored thorium nuclear reactors. There are other untapped natural resources here in Japan, one of which is geothermal energy. Of course, for an island nation here on the Ring of Fire with volcanic activity and all of that, underlying this uh, this very uh, seismically unstable nation, there is a huge potential for geothermal energy here that is not nearly being tapped as much as it could be. Currently, it's uh, the geothermal plants uh, here in Japan, there are 19 of them, and they're producing 535 megawatts of power a year, which is not a huge amount by any means, but, uh, but it could be so much more. And for that, we can turn to an article from the Japan Times from September of 2011. Geothermal trove lies mostly untapped despite energy crisis. And this article says, quote, Conventional wisdom holds that Japan has few natural resources, but geothermal advocates have long argued such thinking ignores this form of energy. A survey by the National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology in 2008 shows Japan ranks third worldwide in geothermal resources behind Indonesia and the United States. There is an estimated 23.5 gigawatts of geothermal energy that could be tapped, the equivalent of 20 nuclear power plants. End quote. Well, I'll let you read the rest of that article for more information about the geothermal potential of Japan, but suffice it to say, yes, even the Japanese government admits the 23.5 gigawatt capacity, and others put that even higher. So certainly there is a large amount of untapped geothermal potential here. What is the other main natural resource that is abundant here in Japan that I think is just waiting to be exploited for the uh, electricity potential that it holds? Well, We're here in an island nation right next to the incredible force of the Pacific Ocean and all of those uncountable billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of gallons of water slushing back and forth all the time. It was the incredible energy that was unlocked by the earthquake that resulted in that devastating tsunami, but it can be tapped for electricity as well. What am I talking about? I'm talking about tidal power.
2: Despite the fact that the oceans cover 70% of the planet's surface, we've only begun to tap them directly as an energy source. But these marine powerhouses may one day unlock the door to clean, limitless energy. Hydroelectric power was the great renewable energy source of the 20th century, and it will continue to provide gigawatts of power. But with most of the world's rivers already dammed, the future of hydropower will come from the sea. Of the various technologies to capture the ocean's energy, a tidal barrage is the closest in design to traditional hydropower. The barrage is essentially a dam, collecting water from high tide until there's sufficient potential energy for power generation then forcing the water through turbines when released during low tide. The world's largest and oldest tidal barrage at Laurence, France, began producing power in 1966. Today, it still powers 240,000 homes. A more recent technology known as tidal stream power uses propeller-like turbines to capture the kinetic energy of underwater currents. And that's one that we could do in all manner of places because the tidal flow, of course, takes place everywhere on Earth. And harvesting those could be done quite well and doesn't even have to be at the surface. The issue, though, is that the marine environment's pretty tough to deal with. There's corrosion, parts being banged back and forth. Often the cost of managing those in terms of repairs can be quite large. But we're seeing new work on that. Much of the work is taking place in the British Isles where companies such as Marine Current Turbines are thinking big, sinking massive pilings into the ocean floor, and letting the turbines do their work. And the amount of energy you get out of a turbine is proportional directly to the density of the fluid that flows back and forth. And so a water turbine has several hundred times the power of of an air turbine. Wave Power is an even newer technology. Yet it may hold the most promise of all, since wave power can be captured anywhere on the ocean. In this design, a 450-foot chain of pipes connected by hinged joints sits semi-submerged on the ocean. Each motion of the waves is resisted by hydraulic rams located in the hinges. This action pumps high-pressure oil through hydraulic motors, which drive electrical generators. Electrical transmission lines also keep the floating power plant tethered to the ocean floor. A Scottish company, Ocean Power Delivery, has installed a successful 2.5 megawatt wave farm off the coast of Portugal. A wave farm occupying less than a half a square mile of ocean would generate 30 megawatts of power, or enough for 20,000 British homes. 472 square miles of ocean, could power each of the United Kingdom's 24.5 million households.
1: Well, just like the United Kingdom, certainly Japan presents itself as an ideal nation to start testing out this hitherto untried technology of harnessing the tidal power. And uh, that's exactly what is happening, finally. Here in October 2011, we had this story that came across BBC News kawasaki to test tidal energy technology in orkney japanese conglomerate kawasaki heavy industries has announced it is to test a new tidal energy system in scottish waters khi will test its new technology at the european marine energy center site at the fa- fall of War- Warness, orkney the maker of kawasaki motorcycles is to develop a tidal power generation system using its expertise in engines marine propulsion and gas turbine systems First Minister Alex Salmond welcomed the announcement. He said it is a very welcome recognition of Scotland's vast marine renewables potential. Japan is one of the great industrial nations of the world, and I am encouraged that it shares Scotland's vision of building on a strong engineering heritage to harness our natural resources and generate clean, renewable power that can reduce harmful emissions and tackle global climate change, end quote. Well, again, this is going to be sold to the public in the name of global warming, but however it's uh, brought to the public's attention, once again, I think even if you don't agree with that particular propaganda, it does not hurt to have this type of clean, renewable energy that is truly uh, a sign that we can actually get out of the death grip that the petrochemical companies have had on our society for a century and a half. And for more on that, I suggest you check out the last word on snake oil. Uh, one of the goodies that I keep up my sleeve that's uh, sitting there in the archives that not a lot of people know about. At any rate, um, this is an idea that has continued to develop. And in May of this year, for example, we had this story from japanfs.org. City of Kyushu starts test of tidal power generation in Kamon Straits. The city of Kitakyushu in Fukuoka Prefecture, southern Japan, began a full-scale trial of tidal power generation at Nika Whiskey Whiskey Distilling Co.'s Moji Factory on March 17, 2012. An experimental tidal power generator has been set up next to the jetty at Moji Factory, where it faces the Kamon Straits, one of the fastest tidal currents in Japan. The test aims to verify power generation capacity and to confirm such issues as the cost and maintenance frequency required. All right. Well, so there you go. There's at least the tests underway and more action is being taken at the political level to make this happen. Uh, We have from the University of Maine earlier this year, Japanese delegation signs tidal energy research agreement with UMaine. University and government officials from Japan were in Orono this week to sign a research agreement between the University of Maine's Tidal Power Initiative and the North Japan Research Institute for Sustainable Energy of Hirosaki University. The groups hope to foster scientific cooperation and academic exchange between the two universities, advancing the development of sustainable tidal energy in both the U.S. and Japan. And even more comes from AsianPower.com, 27th of March, 2012. Tidal energy added to Japan's energy mix... Japan's post-Fukushima search for new sources of electrical power has led it to tidal energy. The country's first tidal turbine will be delivered this October. The new turbine, made by Tocardo BV International of the Netherlands, will serve as an important demonstration of tidal technology in Japan. Uh, And it goes on to note that the uh, current Tocardo turbines have a output capacity of 100 to 200 kilowatts but they are currently working on a 500 kilowatt and a one megawatt offshore turbine so start to add those up and again it starts to add up into something significant that can produce electricity again there is no shortage of ideas out there of different ways of producing electricity it depends where the political will is and unfortunately, in the systems that we're living in, that depends in a few people living in faraway locales that uh, that con- con- come together in, in special buildings to try to decide what the country should do. And it is a ridiculous way of trying to move and further uh, human civilization, but it is what we have. And so at this point, the political will as it manifests in Japan can and probably will have a demonstrable effect into the future, over the future of the energy industry worldwide. Once again, I think that Japan is uniquely situated at this moment in time to truly affect a change and to truly start transitioning off of nuclear power and off of other forms of power into alternative energies that truly can make for a more independent and, and, and possibly a, a strong human civilization, one that is not dependent on petrochemicals, fossil fuels, or those types of companies, which have long since dominated all of our society. And so it is that the Japanese people have the incredible task right now of trying to convince their political masters of the need to turn away from nuclear power. And there are signs that things are changing, potentially for the better. For example, earlier this month on FukushimaUpdate.com, Japan considering deregulation to spur energy industry competition. Quote, Japan should overhaul its power sector dominated by regional monopolies to promote competition and a stable power supply, according to a draft p- proposal issued by a panel of experts set up after the Fukushima nuclear disaster. The report advocated sweeping reforms, including unbundling the regional utilities' grip on the transmission of electricity as well as generation, and opening up the retail power business supplying households and other small lot users. Well, absolutely incredible, and it is certainly starting to happen that there is the political will behind the idea of deregulating the energy industry so that it does not become a regional monopoly system whereby corrupt to the bone corporations like TEPCO end up causing billions upon billions of dollars of damage and then simply cannot pay for the damage they cause so they end up getting bailed out by the taxpayers who end up nationalizing the uh, the losses after TEPCO has privatized the profits. Just an unthinkable horrendous system that has to change and there is the incentive right there right now for it to change. But that doesn't by any means n- mean that it is going to change. And certainly right now, the Japanese politicians of both the uh, the, the Japanese equivalent of the, the two-party system in America, really more like one-and-a-half-party system here, and both sides of this system proclaim that nuclear energy is absolutely needed. And it's not a question of whether we need nuclear energy, but how much. So there is currently some Japanese government uh, reports that are, that are being worked on that will determine whether or not uh, there what percentage of nuclear energy needs to be in the mix in the future in Japan. And unfortunately, it's not helped along by things like this from the OECD, which just released a joint report with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And we have news from this from FukushimaUpdate.com just earlier today. OECD, Nuclear Expansion On Track Despite Fukushima. Strong expansion of nuclear power as a carbon-free energy source in Asia is expected to press ahead despite the Fukushima accident in Japan that soured sentiment in some countries, a benchmark report says. An earthquake and tsunami crippled the Fukushima plant in February 2011, leading to the closure of Japan's 50 reactors and spurring Germany to pledge to close all of its nuclear reactors by 2022. Nuclear energy had been gaining momentum as an energy source for nations seeking to reduce harmful carbon emissions, but the Japanese accident caused second thoughts in some countries. World nuclear capacity is, however, expected to grow by 44 to 99% by 2035, according to a biennial report from the UN nuclear body and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development." And so it is that the same international bodies that have always promoted the nuclear energy industry are now still continuing to pimp for that industry, even in the wake of the hor- horror that has played itself out at Fukushima and the widespread growing public opposition to that uh, that industry and that form of energy. And so we are truly at a crossroads and nowhere more so in the world than here in Japan, where the population truly has the chance, in this brief window of opportunity to make their voices heard and to affect the political transformation that could potentially start a true revolution in terms of energy security and energy independence, not just for Japan, but as a model for the rest of the world to follow. And the question is whether or not the Japanese people will be able to affect that. It's a very, very big topic and one that I will continue to be covering here on this podcast in my radio show and on FukushimaUpdate.com. So I hope you will stay tuned as we buckle down and settle in for the next several months of what should be a very interesting political debate here in Japan. But that is all we have time for for today. So once again, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you so much for joining me this week and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report.